Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,226 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing with the messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. Today is the first of 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. The message is titled, The Last Word, Worthy of Worship. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now last week was Resurrection Sunday. It was such a blessing to have so many people here last week. We were focused on the death of death because the resurrection is real and it changes everything as we studied last week. But today we begin a new extended series on the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. As Paula mentioned, there's a lot of big words here. And I'm not a man of a lot of big words. So we'll get through this. It's an interesting and exciting book, but not often spoke about. The theme is the superiority of Christ in his person and his work. And it resounds through every chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's repeated melody, thinking of a song in which every subject in the letter resonates in perfect harmony. To develop the anthem of Christ's superiority, our author conducts the readers and through three major movements, if you think of movements in a musical com composition. The first is Christ is superior in his person, and we'll cover that through chapters one through four. The second major movement is Christ is superior as our high priest in chapters five through ten. And the third major movement is Christ is superior for pressing on in chapters 11 through 13. But the first question that might come to mind is, the book of Hebrews, isn't that written to those who were Hebrews or Jews? What relevance is it to us? Well, most people reading the book of Hebrews is probably not Jewish believers. And even if they are from Hebrew ancestry, none of us are living through the terrors of that first century chaos that was created by the madness of Nero. However, all of us, whether Jew or Gentile today, can sense that heat rising in our increasingly anti-Christian culture of today, and we feel pressured to conform to the darkening world's values and its priorities. And like those first century Jewish followers of the Messiah who were tempted to abandon his way, his truth, and his life for a more comfortable path, we need to come to grips with the sufficiency of Christ, his absolute superiority over all things. We must pledge our allegiance to the Lord who bought us with his blood. And the central theme of the book of Hebrews is simple and yet very powerful. It is Christ is superior in his person and his work. And throughout the entire book of Hebrews, the author develops this theme in vivid detail. Throughout our message today, we're going to cover the entire first chapter of Hebrews, and it's located on eight, uh, pages 1862 and 1863 in your pew Bibles. And we'll cover it as we come to each of those sections. But drawing on the Hebrews people great regard for the primary means of the revelation of the Old Testament, which was the prophets and the angels who proclaimed God's message, the author of Hebrew compares those celebrated earthly and heavenly beings with God's final word, his messenger, which was Jesus Christ. Now, the powerful and significant as those holy people and those holy angels are and were, they were inferior to the Son of God. He alone is God's final word, his final message for us today, his final 
message for the entire world. So whether human or angelic, Jesus became the word incarnate when he came to earth. The word in the flesh, as we'll read in just a moment. He occupies a superior place in all the world. So let's look at the first verse in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, in the first century, the apostle Peter describes how the ministry of the Old Testament prophets came to be. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And for centuries, this simple Peter's summary of the process of, of supernatural guidance, it also is picked it up in 2 Peter that Paul wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So these prophets issued warnings and rebukes, and it flew off their lips like arrows shot from a bow, and it pierced the very hearts of the hearers of the Old Testament. The names of the servants of God in the Old Testament that were endowed with this prophetic gift reads like a Bible's who-who's list. We have Elijah and Elisha. We have Isaiah and Jeremiah. We have Daniel and Jonah. We have Malachi, and then we had the last Old Testament prophet that came at the same time as Christ was born on earth is John the Baptizer. The prophet was God's representation, his spokesperson, in saying, doing, writing down whatever God wanted to be said and done and written. At the time, they were the soul bearers of God's message to humankind. And during that time, they should have not been ignored. And for the sake of emphasis, the author points out a varied manner in which God's message were delivered in the past. As we take the Old Testament and flip through its pages, we see that the message came in different ways and different means. It came through dreams in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5. It came through visions in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It came through angels in Zechariah 1, verse 9. It came through voices in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 4. It came through writings in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. And it even came through Balaam's donkey. He says, why are you beating me? And the donkey prophesied. So God can use any type of instrument to get his message across. The message from God came at different times and in different ways, and it was not all at once. And this is the whole mosaic of the Old Testament. We sit and wonder, how could the disciples of Christ have been so dull, or how the people of Christ's day have been so dull? It's because the Old Testament was a mosaic of what happened. They had difficulty grasping that concept of the Messiah, even when Christ was here on earth. Through all the messages, although they were all accurate, they were incomplete. But God always has more than he can say. And this reminds me of my childhood growing up, a family of 10 kids with my mom and dad. Sometimes I got information from my parents through instruction. Sometimes, probably more often than necessary, I got it through discipline. Sometimes I got the message by just looking at my mom and dad and seeing their example of a godly parent. But it came to me fragmentary, partial, and incomplete. 
Continually throughout my childhood, though, it built on what they were teaching me. And that's what happened with the Old Testament. It was gradual, not all at once, and it built on each other as God gave his message out to those Old Testament saints. My parents' instruction to me came gradually, and it matured me into what hopefully is a mature and wise and adult. At least that would have been their hope. So progressively building me toward that mature adulthood. The childhood experience is similar to that ministry of the Old Testament. Once the prophets and even the, through angels, the Old Testament message came, it was accurate and contributed to their growing body of revelation from God to his people. As we move on to verses 2 and 3 in Hebrews, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand at the majesty in heaven. Now verse 1 says, in the past, verse 2 says, in these last days. The contrast is between the prophetic anticipation of the Old Testament prophets, the other is the fulfillment of the everything, the covenant, the new covenant in Christ. And it's immediately highlighted in these first two verses of Hebrews. The point is that God's message in the Old Testament prophets, it found its climax, its completion in the expression, in the person, in the work of his son. In other words, Christ is superior in his person and work. He is the final and fullest expression of God's message to the world, to all humankind. The old means and manner of speaking to his people was not defective or deficient. It just wasn't complete. The Old Testament prophets and those angels that proclaimed God's word was great, but Christ is greatness. The prophet's message from the Lord was perfect, although not complete. Jesus is perfection, completeness. The seers of the old were the instruments. The son is the music. He is the one to whom and for whom and through whom and about whom all the musicians had been playing about during the Old Testament. And what follows in the arguments to the Hebrews is the centrality of Christ in God's work. His revelation depends on the superior, superiority of Christ in his person and his work. To underscore this point, the author of Hebrews opens his sermon-like letter with seven strong statements. They demonstrate the superiority of the Son as God's word in all things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. And if you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says, worthy of worship at the top, Christ is superior in his word, person, and work. So let's look at these seven strong statements. The first strong statement is, by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, in verse 2. And these all things means all things. Nothing left out. Nothing stands outside that circle. For instance, God had given a share of his responsibility in the beginning, to rule over his creation to Adam and Eve. They were his imagers. They were to image God in that creation. But those first humans fell into sin. They forfeited the right to rule over that creation that God had deemed for them to do in Genesis chapter 3. But however, the divine son took on humanity. He became flesh. 
He became that last Adam, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. That was Jesus Christ. And that Adam, what Ad, the first Adam lost, the last Adam restored everything to him. The second strong statement is, by his son, through whom also he made the universe, in verse 2. As a perfect human, Jesus ruled over the creation that he made. He was the perfect creator. He is sovereign, and he is a ruler of all creation. He's creation past, present, and future. And Paul also clarifies Christ's role as the creator in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth, or in the, in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything he created through him and for him. And similarly, you remember when we studied the book of John, John opens the gospel with that same majestic truth in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. As we move on to the third strong statement, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And this is verse 3. Now, the noun radiance is the Greek word apagosma, which refers to a brightness from a source. And we think of the sun who continually provides us with light and heat and energy. As long as that flaming orb is burning, we will have all that from the sun. The Son of God, though, is eternal. He conveys glory and majesty and power from God from eternity past clear into eternity future. No prophet, no angelic being, however holy and wise, could claim that. They were merely reflectors, imagers of God's glorious light. But the sun is the light itself. The fourth strong statement is, the sun is the exact representation of his being in verse 3. The four words that make up this in the Greek phrase is packed with profound theological significance. The clause asserts that the Son shares everything God is in His divine nature. The word translated exact representation. Think about a coin that's being minted. It's the exact representation of that original die that's creating that coin. The Son is no cheap knockoff of a deity, no inferior reproduction, than the superior original. The term his being is hypotasis, and it's referring to the authentic being of God. The Son is therefore completely the same as the Father. Though the Father and the Son are distinct persons, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But everything that the Father is, the Son is also. There's no difference. Fifth strong statement is the Son is sustaining all things by His powerful Word, also in verse 3. You may have seen the image of the God Atlas with the big world on His shoulders and His bulging muscles just like I have, <clears throat> and His sweat dripping down, holding the entire world up. That's nothing compared to what the Son of God does for us. Not only the entire world, but the entire universe. But he sustains creation, not with physical strength, but by his mighty word. The Son himself has the power to sustain through everything from his very word. The sixth strong statement is the Son provided purification for sins in verse 3. The first Adam 
He undid humanity by disobedience, plunging the world into darkness, death, sin, and suffering. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, through his involuntary suffering and death on the cross, drove out darkness and banished death, as we learned in last week's message. What had been poisoned by Adam and Eve by sin was cured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Forever, once for all, never to be repeated. Christ resolved everything. The author of Hebrews will explain throughout the entire book, neither earthly humans nor heavenly angels could have ever accomplished this. And then the final strong statement, the seventh one is, the sun set down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In this also in verse 3. Now in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. No exalted prophet, no saint, no mighty angel can stand at the right hand of the Father to receive the praise and glory that is due to the divine majesty. So seated in this exalted position, Jesus is superior in his person and work over all things. This includes the angels. The spiritual creatures fashioned by God through the Son to be ministers and servants, as we'll see in verse 14 in our chapter today. When the Son took on a human nature, he became one of us, but he endured death for our sins. He rose from the dead victoriously and ascended back into heaven. And he inherited a name that no angel has the right to bear. In verse 4 it says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name is inherited is superior to theirs. And what name is that? The son bears the name of his father. Just like I named my son Harold Guthrie Chamberlain IV. Jesus Christ received the name of his father. He was the Son of God who bared the name of God, the divine nature of what we call Yahweh, W-H-Y-H, or Y-H-W-H, Yahweh in the Old Testament scriptures, is often translated karios in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul also teaches us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him a name that is above all other names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Bible, we really don't have much teaching about the angels. But Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 probably has more teaching than the rest of the scripture in its entirety. Nowhere do we have a clear account when the angels were created. We think, believe in Genesis 1 and 2 when God says, let us make man or humankind in our own image, that the divine counsel of angels were there with him when he proclaimed that. However, we also know that the divine, a divine creature or creatures chose to disobey God and tempted Adam and Eve to disobey. But we also know that God staged or stationed angelic cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden on the east side to block the entrance back into paradise, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So sometime before Genesis 3, God created what we call the angels, which includes all the supernatural beings in the unseen realm. Now, as powerful as, of creation of God, as powerful creations of God, the, con the conduct 
for the angels, or what their role is, is to provide services for the Lord. They're carrying his message. They're performing his will. They're doing for us, among us, warning, protecting, helping, and rescuing those humans on earth. And although they make up part of God's divine counsel, as we want one, will one day when we have our immortal bodies, they are also God's servants who, like us, render their worship to him alone, as we read in Gen Revelations 5.13. But as remarkable as angels are, their shining essence, their gloom, illuminations, dims in the glorious blast of the radiance of the Son of God. Therefore, without denigrating their vital roles that they have, those in the heavenly realms, they are servants to God. And the writer of Hebrew puts them in their place and comparing them to the person and the work of a son. To establish the superiority of the son to the angels, the author of Hebrew skillfully builds their case from a string of Old Testament passages. Remember, many of the Jews of that day were being persecuted and they were abandoning or ready to abandon their faith in the Messiah and to go back to the old dictates that was taught in the synagogues. But the Old Testaments in the synagogues were held in their highest regard, almost above God themselves at time. But showing from the same scriptures that the Messiah is superior to everything in heaven and on earth, the author moved in such a way to draw his audience in to more commitment to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at your bulletin insert on the other side, the top half. The remainder of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, all came from the Old Testament. And I have the comparison between the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews of where each of these passages came from. Verse 5 came from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and then Psalm 89, verse 27, and 1 Chronicles. So verse 5 says, For to, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. So he began citing the rich prophetic lines from the Old Testament as he imported them into the New Testament book of Hebrews. It is especially related to the coming of the Messiah, the son of David. And in Psalm 2 and Psalm 89, they were both critical texts for the Old Testament anticipation of that future Davidic king. As we look at Psalm 2, the first two verses of it, it says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The king of the earth Kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, the Hebrew word for Messiah was Mashiach, and the Greek word for it is Christos. Sometimes we think Christ is Jesus' last name. It was not. It was the title. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. So the anointed one refers to any person in the Old Testament even, that could be consecrated as a sacred one. He could be a prophet, a priest, or the king. And we see all three examples of this in the Old Testament. To this Messiah, though, God declares in this passage, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And it applies to the coming of a royal position of kingship, the moment of becoming exalted in the enthronement that followed the ascension and the resurrection. If you remember, the New Testament passage says that he became a little lower than the angels, and that was when he took on human flesh. But once he was resurrected and ascended back to heaven, he was restored to his rightful place 
above everything. He is superior to all. The Messianic title, the Son, as a backdrop, the author of Hebrew rightly points out that at no time did God ever address the angelic beings as my son, nor did he ever call himself the father of the angels. Angels are created beings and has been assigned high and holy task, important task, but they're within God's plan and purpose that God had. But the son himself, the one to whom even the angels were created, as we were told in Colossians chapter 1.16. So we move on to verse 6. But again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's taken from Psalm 97, 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Now the author advances an argument further, indicating that the angels must worship the Son because of who he is, the author of their existence, and the God over all creation. In contrast, God is honored, but idolaters are ashamed. Now the angels in Psalm 97, 7, it actually says, has the word Elohim. And we, refer, we think of Elohim as the one true God, which it is. But Elohim was referred to also these angels, which are little g-gods, and as part of God's divine counsel. But they also worship Yahweh, the one true God. So the Greek word Elohim for gods is also referred to or translated in the New Testament Greek as angelos or angels. And by citing this Greek text, the author of Hebrews makes a sweeping claim that all supernatural beings, imagined or real, angelic or demonic, are inferior to the Son. And with this claim, the status of, the created, of those created in the supernatural realm, he also asserts something profound about the person of his Son. He is identified as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Therefore, we're not to, not to worship the Son as both God and man, is blaspheming. So we move on to verse 7, which is Psalm 104, verse 4. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. And we see in verse 7, the angelic ministers are likened to wind and fire, swift and potent in their own right. Nevertheless, they're finite creatures that God created and are under God's sovereign rule. So by comparing, however, the writer of Hebrews places the Son of God on the other side of this dividing line between the creatures and the Creator. And he calls his Son God. And it applies in Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, which is the same as Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, or verse, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, I mentioned Hebrews is a little bit difficult to parse our way through at times. But if, you, if we grasp what the author was trying to get through to us, it's a magnificent book. And while the angels were ministers in the heavenly kingdom, Jesus is the divine monarch. No supernatural being or human ruler has an eternal kingdom or perfect righteousness. The Son of God has all of these. He is morally superior to every other creature, human or angels. The anointed Son of God, who is God himself, is not merely righteous. He is righteousness incarnate. He is righteousness in the flesh. He took on our flesh, but he was pure and righteous. 
As if to highlight that Christ is truly God and not merely a godlike one, the author of Hebrew quotes from Psalm 105, verses 25 through 27, and he applies it directly to his son. And this is verses 10 through 12 in Hebrews chapter 1. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, and you remain the same, and your years will never end. Now, throughout the psalm, it is Yahweh, the Creator God, who is in view. Therefore, the author of Hebrews associates the Son of God not with the creatures, whether human or angels, not the creatures, whether heavenly or earthly, but with the Creator, who laid the foundations of the earth. And even though everything created is subject to growing old and wearing out like a garment, Jesus, as the God-man, will never perish. And as God, he is eternal, he has no beginning, and he'll have no end. In verse 13, it goes on to say, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make my, your enemies a footstool for your feet? Which is Psalm 110, verse 1. No angel ever took a seat at the Father's right hand, but the Son is the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies and is enthroned with the Father in heaven until all the enemies were subdued. So when Christ ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God, it was complete. He is superior to everything he created. And then one last verse here in Hebrews chapter 1 is verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation? So in contrast, these angelic messengers have different roles. They were created for different purposes, but all purposes within God's plan. They are actively ministering at the will of the divine master. They are ministering spirits, rendering their service on behalf of the Son for the benefit of the saints, those who will inherit salvation. That's us. Isn't that an astonishing thought? So behind the scene, something we can't see, unperceivable to us, to you and to me, is that these invisible spirits are working on God's purpose and plan in our lives. We refer to them maybe as guardian angels, but they're here as ministering spirits to assist us. We don't know how or why exactly, but the author of Hebrews points it out distinctly. So what's the application today? Application of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And this is on the bottom half of your, this side of your bulletin insert. It says, God's words, his word, his angels, and us. So the book of Hebrews doesn't open with some sort of subtle glow that grow, gradually grows brighter and brighter. It starts out with a brilliant explosion that destroys every flimsy concept of the person and the work of Christ. Every faulty notion of his position in the universe. Because he is superior. He is, the greatest of the he is greater than any created being in the unseen realm. And if he is greater than most, if he is greater than all the remarkable creatures, if he is greater than everyone else, what else can he be but the creator himself? It's a powerful message. And I see here in this passage three eternal principles, which I've listed in your bulletin insert for us today. Practical applications that we should not forget. The first of these eternal principles are God's angelic servants intrigue us, but only God's word can enlighten us. Now, God spoke directly to us. He's done through his written word, his 
His written word with this scripture, God spoke to us everything that we need to know. His very words are conveyed in the thoughts as we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 about inspiration. God's word, the Bible, should consume us as we consume it. He also sent his word incarnate, as we looked at in John chapter 1, to whom was written, the word points to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ points to the word. As interesting as angels are, and we might be getting intrigued by these ministering spirits, it is never, they are never to be the recipients of our prayers, the objects of our worship, or the subject of any obsessions that we might have. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit should command our worship and our praise. The Son of God alone is the source of life and the Savior of our lives. The second eternal principle is God's angelic servants minister to us, but only God's Spirit can minister in us. Angels should not be confused with the Holy Spirit. They are spirits in the unseen realm, but they're not the Holy Spirit. Angels don't transform our souls. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He is, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, our comforter, the one who has come to, called alongside us to help us along our way. He is our stability, our comfort, and our guide. So heavenly beings in the unseen realm do exist, and yes, they minister on our behalf, but they too are subject to the Son of God. And then third principle is that God's angelic servants protect us physically, but only God's Son can save us spiritually. The one who occupies the throne of our lives has to be Jesus Christ. Angelic beings watch on their tiptoes and they crane their necks to look down upon us. The Apostle Peter pointed out in the Old Testament prophets long ago that spiritual salvation through the Son what we experience today, the angels also desire to see. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you and is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So the angels not only are ministering spirits to us, but they desire to see God's plan worked out in our lives. In light of the superior revelation, the superior salvation that we have in the Son, the superior work of the prophets of the Old Testament and the angels, we should respond in thought, in word and in deed, that Jesus Christ is superior to all things in his person and his work. And that's what Hebrews chapter 1 is all about. Next Sunday, we will continue our series on the adventure through the book of Hebrews. The first section of Hebrews will last us seven weeks, and that is the Christ is superior in his person. Next week, the message will be, don't neglect so great of salvation. And I'd ask you to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the Old Testament prophets who diligently proclaimed your word and we have recorded in your entire word. We thank you that Jesus Christ fulfilled everything the prophets started. We thank you for the angelic beings that you've created in the past, Father, to be ministers to us, to assist us in our lives. We pray, Father, that we will be faithful to you and worship only you as our 
one and whole only Savior in God. We thank you that you created all things for your honor, for your glory. And we celebrate this. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.